Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again. Uh, You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is the second hour. Go back and listen to the first hour via podcast later today at MyFaithRadio.com or via the Faith Radio app. The U.S. uh, is engaged in a massive airlift of individuals seeking to be evacuated from Afghanistan. Um, The headlines around this are many. I'm not going to try to give numbers because I'm not really sure how accurate those numbers would be. We're talking about tens of thousands of people, and we're not just talking about the United States in terms of uh, airlifts. We are talking about many countries around the globe. We're also talking about private citizens and organizations who have been uh, moving people not only uh, via airlifts, but over ground. And so I want to highlight some of those stories this morning. Um, But I also want to spend some time today um, talking about the people who are not going to be evacuated from Afghanistan um, and what the reality of life in Afghanistan is going to be like long term for um, most, I mean, the overwhelming majority of Afghan citizens. And so when you hear um, stories about hundreds of missionary families being evacuated, thousands of people who have been responsible for NGOs, non-governmental organizations, um, when you hear about every U.S. military boot being off the ground by uh, the end of the day on the 31st of August, and when you hear about every American who wants to leave the country being, um, being evacuated, I want you to consider the void that leaves behind. When you hear the headline that the Taliban does not want Afghanis who are um, educated, engineers, doctors, um, when you hear them say, we're not going to let those people leave, recognize that when those people leave, you have a nation that has no doctors and no engineers. And, and so we, when we talk about the reality on the ground for the people of Afghanistan, um yes, we are focused right now. Many uh many people are focused right now on American citizens, green card holders, special immigrant visa applicants, people who uh, have worked for US-based NGOs, news organizations, people who are now qualifying um in new refugee categories being developed even as we speak and navigating those processes of getting out of Afghanistan. I recognize that's where our attention is focused. I would like in this segment this morning to pivot our attention to the people who are going to live in Afghanistan long term and what life is going to look like there. And so uh, next up, I have um, just very, very honored to have with me Lieutenant General John Bradley of the United States Air Force. He served as the commander of the United States Air Force Reserve Command headquartered uh, in Washington, D.C. He also served um, as the uh, uh, the head of 
our reserve forces, uh, Air Force Reserve units around the world. Um, he is a much decorated fighter pilot, and he has been operating in Afghanistan now for 14 years in his retirement um, in in a, in a really magnificent ministry. And so we want to talk with General Bradley next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, retired Lieutenant General John Bradley. I'm going to thank you, sir, for your not only service to this country, but thank you for your service to Christ and the people of the world. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you very much, Mrs. Burge. It's very, very nice to be here with you. Thank you. Um, I want you to um, introduce yourself and um, and your ministry by, you know, just telling people the story um, of a little girl that you met now a fairly long time ago. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and this is absolutely how it happened. Uh, I had been uh, to Afghanistan. I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, five times, not for combat myself. I was a somewhat senior officer in the Air Force visiting my reserve, Air, Air Force Reserve Airmen who had deployed there many times. I was just visiting them four or five days at a time to thank them for what they're doing, ask them what we could do better in training them, preparing them to go. So I'm on this trip. I find out, uh, I learn about at Bagram Air Base, a voluntary program of soldiers and airmen there who are helping uh, women and children in local villages. It was a huge effort handing out school supplies, toys, clothing, etc. I came home, I told my wife about, after that trip, I told my wife about it. She, in Washington, D.C., we were on an Air Force base there, Bowling Air Force Base. She collected 40,000 pounds of clothing and blankets, et cetera, and, and boxed it. Basically, our house was a Goodwill store. She went to churches, schools, thrift shops, 40,000 pounds, and I had a big cargo airplane taking me to Afghanistan on my next trip. So I'm at Bagram Air Base. The security people take me off base to a village. I'm handing out blankets, and a little nine-year-old girl broke through a line of boys, you know, uh, in their culture. Men and boys have priority. It's It's one thing that needs to change through education, but this little girl named Lamia, L-A-M-I-A, came up and begged me for boots, wearing a tattered sweater and sandals. It was December, asking me for boots like I was wearing, my uniform desert boots. And uh, several months later, eight months later, I was retiring. My wife and I had maybe a five-minute conversation and talked to each other uh, about helping people in Afghanistan when I retired. And that's all it was, five-minute conversation. And we've been working through our, we call it a mom-and-pop nonprofit uh, for the last 13 years. And uh, we've built seven schools for girls. The last one was completed eight days ago. 1,100 girls were supposed to start school uh, Monday a week ago. (laughs) We have five schools in refugee camps or IDP camps, internally displaced persons camps. We've shipped 11 and a half, I mean, three and a half million pounds of humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. We put custom-made state-of-the-art prosthetics on children who lose legs. And uh, we do many, many other things, uh, distributing humanitarian aid, food, blankets, winter clothing, et cetera. Uh, 
that's sort of a snapshot of how we started and what we do. So as you're listening to um, General John Bradley share with us uh, about Lamia, let me also um, direct you to the website of this mom and pop nonprofit that is doing extraordinary work, L-A-M-I-A, so La and then Mia, L-A-M-I-A dot O-R-G. Um, Thank you. I can, I really can only imagine what the current events in Afghanistan are doing in your heart. Um, And so maybe just share your perspective on current events. And then I'd love to have a conversation with you about the hope you have for the future there. Well, uh, I will tell you, uh, honestly, I'm on the verge of tears and I hope I don't Mm -hmm. break down, but uh, my wife and I have broken down. Our daughter's here taking off for work, helping us. We've been working 18, 20 hours a day for days and days and days, weeks, filling out forms, sending them to the State Department, to the Pentagon, to the Joint Staff for evacuation of probably 150 to 200 people. I can't have lost count. Many of them have worked with us and for us. We're trying to get Lamia and her family out because she's the name of our foundation, the Lamia mm-hmm. Afghan Foundation. And uh, that's wet, widely known there. It's easy for people through social media to, to learn who she is and she'll be in danger. Jan and I have been to Afghanistan seven times together, staying a month at a time with no security. We don't get any military support or we don't get stale military bases, but we've gone there seven times for a month at a time. Uh, to do our work, and we visit Lamia in her little village uh, every time, so there are a lot of people that have seen these Americans visiting this little village, and, you know, there are always Taliban around, but anyway, I'm worried about Lamia and her family. I'm worried about our country director and his family. I'm worried about a a young man, probably 30 years old, who's a doctor. We helped go through medical school, and his family is at risk. He's built two schools for us and helped us with distribution in Western Afghanistan. I'm really concerned about trying to, and so we're working trying to get these people approved for evacuation. Several of these families have been to the airport several times, never able to get in. We've submitted all these forms. We just never hear back from anyone uh, when we've submitted things to the State Department and to the Pentagon. They, the Pentagon acknowledges they've received our information. We filled out the forms they told us, and, uh, but no one has been contacted, and that's my concern. So I'm, I'm worried that these families will not get out. So what does that offer? It offers life, life in Afghanistan, again, under Taliban rule, which they had in the late 1990s and early 2000s until the U.S. went in there in the fall of 2001. It is not, it's not a wonderful life. It is a very cloistered life. Women mostly have to stay in their homes. They can't work. Girls, many times, were not even allowed to go to school. And uh, the Taliban today, their spokesmen are trying to put a soft face on their, their new approach. But in reality, you just can't trust them. You can't believe them because... Uh, Taliban operatives all over the country today are going around harassing people, visiting door to door, looking for people and uh, looking for documents to find who has connections to Americans. So I don't think the offer, the the future offers great hope for some of these people. I'm, I'm not trying to overstate it, but we've seen this movie before 
And I'm very, very worried about what will happen to so many people in Afghanistan. And, and listen, we've educated tens of thousands of girls just in our school over these years. Tens, it, our first school was completed 10 years ago. Tens of thousands of girls in just our schools, and there are many others. It's just incredible because that helps young girls grow up to be wives and mothers who teach their young boys to grow up to be men who respect women and treat them with dignity and respect. And that did not used to happen. And it teaches their girls that they can grow up and have an education and, and get a job and help their families. So I don't want all that to be lost, but there are so many more educated young girls and women today now because Americans have been there for 20 years. And I just, I don't want that to be lost. We're heartbroken with what's happening. And I'm sorry to run on so much, but mm -mm, I'll, I'll let you fine. ask some more questions. Well, we're going to take a very brief break. And when we come back, I'm going to continue um, our conversation with retired Lieutenant General John Bradley. Um, and we're going to talk more about um, what is happening with the people in Afghanistan and our hope in Christ. And we're going to we're certainly going to ask how we can be praying for um, not only John and Jan Bradley and their ministry, but um, Lamia and her family as well. You can find more information at Lamia, L-A-M-I-A dot O-R-G. We'll be right back. John Bradley um, at some level is just a regular guy who is pressing the full force of his life into um, the lives of others in the name of Christ. The ministry is Lamia, L-A-M-I-A dot O-R-G. It is focused on um, really alleviating the challenges faced by the people of Afghanistan, the most vulnerable of people there. Um, I want you to check out what they're doing and connect with John and Jan at Lamia, L-A-M-I-A dot O-R-G. Um, John, let's talk about um, specifically how we can pray for you and support your efforts. Well, thank you. We, we would love to have your prayers and prayers of your listeners. Mostly, I want to pray for the people in Afghanistan, the, the families that are vulnerable, and there are so many, and there's so many that want hope for the future. They want to have a, a life that anyone in the world should be able to expect to have. And we are, we're worried about that. We're concerned because uh, these people have been under the control of the Taliban in the past. Uh, half the population there doesn't even know of those days. They're so young. But we need to pray for them. And I would love to have prayers for the, the many people, the hundred, few hundred people that have worked for our foundation and helped us and to keep them safe. And listen, two of these families that I'm talking about have had people killed by the Taliban in years past, not recently, years past, because they worked with us. And so the remaining members of those families are vulnerable as well. So I would, I would love to have prayers for them. Jan and I are fine. We, we always appreciate prayers of people, but really uh, I want to emphasize the need for prayers for Afghanistan and, and the people who are so vulnerable. Let's just pause right now, John, and do that. Father, we come before you um, as a brother and sister in Christ, with brothers and sisters in Christ in the hundreds of thousands listening right now. We bear up before you, the people of Afghanistan, 
Um, we bear up before you the most vulnerable among them. We ask for your divine hedge of protection around Lamia and her family, around uh, the country director and um, and doctors and teachers and people who have advocated um, on the ground for the building of schools and the educating of girls. Um, we lift up to you families in Afghanistan who just want hope and a future. Um, and we come before you, Father, as people who enjoy the reality of life, liberty, and a place where we can pursue happiness. And so, Father, we ask that you would make a way where there seems to be no way in a place where evil has had its way for so long. And so we ask, Father, an outpouring of your Holy Spirit and, again, divine protection around those who will remain in Afghanistan under the Taliban rule. And we pray for a change of heart in the Taliban. Reveal yourself, the goodness of your greatness and your grace. Um, reveal yourself in Christ, in dreams and visions and in, in ways that would be inexplicable, um, where you cannot be explained away. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That is near perfect. It, I couldn't ask for a better prayer. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, let me direct people again to the website. If if you do nothing more than look into the eyes looking back at you through the pictures on this website, your life is going to be different for having seen the children of Afghanistan, for having seen their faces, and for being able to pray with a face in mind. And so go to Lamia, L-A-M-I-A dot O-R-G, and use it as a prayer resource if you do nothing else. And if you're able to do something else, do more. Um, John Bradley, we're going to check back in with you um, in the coming weeks and months. Thank we you. want to hear good news stories, but we also recognize that um, every story is probably not going to be a good news story. And so we want to entrust you and this ministry to Christ. And, um, and thank you for what you're doing today and every day on behalf, um, on behalf of the people of Afghanistan. You're very welcome, and thank you so much for bringing such good attention to a very important story. We appreciate Absolutely. it, and I look forward it's my, to rejoining it's my, it's my honor. It's my honor. We'll be right back. All right, we're going to make a what might feel like an odd pivot here to... You know, just another reality of our lives, and that is that we are raising a new generation, raising a next generation, um, and how we guide our kids to be wise in a digital world is a real issue before us that we face in our lives day in and day out. So Parenting Generation Screen is the book we're discussing next with author Jonathan McKee, and we do have books to give away. So if you're looking for ways to make connection before correction in terms of parenting generation screen, go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. This is Max Lucado. According to Philippians 2 and verse 7, Jesus took the very nature of a servant. He became like us so he could serve us. He entered the world not to demand our allegiance, but to display his affection. He knew you'd be sleepy. He knew you'd be grief-stricken and hungry. He knew you'd face pain, if not the pain of the body, the pain of the soul. He knew you'd face thirst, if not a thirst for the water, at least a thirst for truth. 
And the truth we glean from the image of a thirsty Christ on the cross is Jesus understands. When we feel lonely, knowing someone understands can make all the difference. You can be surrounded by people but still feel lonely if you don't feel known. And you can be alone but not feel lonely if you are known. God became flesh so we would always feel known by Him. This is Max Lucado. You got me singing like All right, get ready, because we're going to have a conversation with Jonathan McKee that you have been looking forward to. This is about guiding our kids to be wise in a digital world. The book is Parenting Generation Screen. Jonathan, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Oh, thanks so much for having me. All right, so we need to tell people right off, first of all, you're a dad. You've also written a lot of other books in this subject matter area, like Uh, The Teen's Guide to -to Face-to-Face Connections in a Screen-to-Screen World, or um, the guys, I liked uh, the guy's guide to God, girls, and the phone in your pocket. What makes or what sets this one apart? Like, why are we having a conversation about parenting generation screen? Yeah, no, no, great question. I I think it's just right now, I mean, parenting has always been difficult. I mean, for me, man, parenting's tough. It's something that we, you know, aren't supposed to just, you know, do and tell our kids what to do. But this is, is more like modeling responsibility and, and modeling, you know, relationship with God and modeling good decision making. Um, but man, now that technology is in our back pockets and social media is in our back pockets, parents have even more questions as if parenting wasn't difficult enough. Now, all of a sudden, there's questions like, well, well, my kid wants to bring their device into their room every night. You know, mom, it's my alarm clock. You know, the, those, my, my eight-year-old is saying that all her friends have smartphones and all some pressure to, to put a device like this in the hands of an eight or a 10-year-old. What, what age is the perfect age? You know, uh, uh, my kids on social media are playing video games all night. You know, what, what can I do to, to dialogue with them about this? I mean, sure, it'd be nice to have some rules and some boundaries, but is there a way we can start equipping our kids to become screen wise. How do we, how do we begin those conversations? And so that's exactly what I want to do. I want to provide a tool that would help parents engage in these kinds of conversations and know what boundaries are actually helpful. All right. So if you're looking for really super practical um, information and equipping in the area of parenting the screen generation, Parenting Generation Screen is the book you're looking for. Jonathan McKee is the author. He joins me today. And yes, we are giving copies away. So if you're interested, you can text the word book to 877-933-2484, and we will enter you into the drawing for the copies of Parenting Generation Screen that we have in studio. Um, Let's just start down the list, Jonathan. Like, let's do one of those questions that you already raised. What kind of practical wisdom is there when we're approaching the question of when to get a kid a smartphone? Well, you know, it's interesting. That is probably a question that is subject to so much debate. And one thing that makes it difficult is that we live in a country where the average age a kid does get a phone is about 10 years old. So when your fifth grader comes home and says, Mom, all my friends have smartphones, very often the pressure really is on. A lot of our kids' friends do have them already. And a lot of parents are kind of feeling the pressure of, well, they're, they're going to be in sports now that they're in like in middle school, you know, so my 11-year-old or 12-year-old is there at soccer, they need to be able to call, 
you know, and I think we immediately forget about, you know, the days and age when, you know, we used to, you know, be there and somehow, somehow we made it without a smartphone, but not, you know, we need to hand our kid this device that gives them access to, you know, social media, Netflix, everything else. And, and when you really ask the experts, when you ask the experts out there about this, the first answer they'll always say is when they're being responsible, that's when you give a kid a phone. But if you ask them very specifically, like Jim Steyer, the president of Common Sense Media, who researches this stuff all the time, when you ask him, hey, when did you give your kids a smartphone? The answer was high school, 14 years old. When you ask Bill Gates, a guy who kind of knows technology, hey, when did you give your kids smartphones? The answer was 14 in high school. If you ask me, a guy who researches this and talks about this all the time, when's a good time to give your kids a smartphone? I would actually say the summer before their first year of high school. And I'd say that should be a summer bathed in conversation where you don't just throw them the keys to the car. If your 12-year-old came up and said, hey, could I have the keys to the SUV? You wouldn't just toss them the keys and be like, good luck. You know, and that's what we do with a smartphone. Instead, it'd be like, well, first of all, you got to be a certain age. You got to show some responsibility. But also, we're going to talk about this. I'm going to sit next to you and we're going to learn about what it means to become screen wise. So I really think don't, don't rush and give that 10 year old a smartphone. I'd say wait till at least they're getting towards that age of responsibility, which most experts will say 13, 14 years old. So that driver's license or learner's permit conversation um, is a good one. Uh, I think that yeah. there are things that Students, young people need to know in advance, and they learn those things by sitting beside us while we're in the driver's seat. So, you know, my oh. own use of my phone and when and where it charges up and whether or not it's in my room overnight and all those kinds of things are going to guide them as they move into the driver's seat and I move into the passenger seat and they get their, you know, sort of learner's permit period of time before I just let them go with it all by themselves out there into the uh, you know, the big wide world. So I think that's a good parallel to draw. Um, are yeah. some types of screen time worse or better than others, or is all screen time created equally? Excellent question. And that's also been a subject of so much debate because like, think about even during the, during COVID, so many people were like, oh my goodness, you know, the screens are our connection with the outside world. So our kids are on screens for school. Uh, if our kids ever want to talk to family members, talk talk to their aunt or their grandma. Grandma. And, and, yeah, yeah, grandma yeah, thinks yeah. that, let me just say, grandma thinks her screen time, uh, for my little people who are listening out there and don't live where I live, grandma screen time is superior to all other screen time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's what all teenagers really are looking for is grandma screen time. I mean, that's that's really the focus, you know. And so the thing is to, to sit there and look and go, OK, is when my son is gaming all day long or when my daughter is scrolling through TikTok or when she's mm. zooming, you know, at school, are all these things equal? And what most experts have basically come together and said is, no, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, there's two experts in particular, Dr. Jean Twenge, who's the author of iGen, and Dr. Jonathan Haidt, both professors, were kind of tired of the debate because a lot of, some people were saying, hey, stop picking on video games, stop picking on, you know, streaming movies, or stop, you know, and so they're like, okay, well, let's, let's really look at the data. So they put all the data together, they created an open source document, and this is fascinating because basically, picture this, a bunch of people who talk about this all the time, who have maybe even different opinions in their studies, have shown different things. They said, well, what do we agree on? And so in this open source document, they, they going into COVID, they literally looked and they said, you know what? 
we all agree on two things. And the two things they agreed on is one is there's a mental health crisis that has happened with young people in the last few years. And we don't know what it is. We got to figure out what this is. And so as they started looking, they said the second thing that they all agreed on is stop trying to look at all screen time. Because when you look at all screen time, the data is very inconclusive. But when you narrow the search down to just social media, especially with young girls, the data is very clear that it's affecting mental health big time. And then they got specific. They said, whenever our kids, especially girls, are spending more than just an hour or two a day on, and they didn't even use the word social media. They said, any platform where they're trying to get likes and followers, the pressure is so great. We need to really watch how much time our kids are spending doing that. Jonathan McKee is the author of many books. The one we're talking about today is Parenting Generation Screen, Guiding Your Kids to Be Wise in a Digital World. Uh, The question I'm going to ask him immediately after the break is, what about Creepy Basement Guy? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, returning to our conversation with Jonathan McGee, we are talking about his brand new book, Parenting Generation Screen. Yes, we're giving copies away today. To enter that drawing, just text the word book to 877-933-2484, and you can find Jonathan and lots of his resources at becomingscreenwise.com. All right, Jonathan, let's talk about Creepy Basement Guy. You talk Uh about how parents can teach their kids to recognize predatory behavior. Maybe brief us in on that. Right now, we happen to live in in a time where it is the perfect storm of opportunity for predators, because never before have devices been so readily available. Never have there been as many devices within our kids' fingertips. I mean, they're following 89% of teenagers have a smartphone in their back pocket. Uh, access to social media, about 97%. Because, you know, we're trying to get our kids on screens for education, right? And that's, of course, what all kids are thinking about with their screens is how can I become educated? So never before have so many kids have had access to screens. Um, Never before have kids felt as low about themselves as right now. And the third thing that's quite interesting, and not a lot of people are talking about this, and I spend quite a bit of time talking about it in the book, is the fact that recently there's this huge movement towards young people wanting to become an influencer. Eight out of 10, eight out of 10 young people want to be an influencer in some form because one of their favorite things to do on, on these little screens is they, they like to watch funny videos and they like to watch videos. And many kids are like, I could do that. Hey, I could talk about makeup or I could talk about my Legos or I could do this and I could become an influencer. Eight out of 10 young people because of that, it has changed the way they navigate social media because now all of a sudden those numbers of likes and followers have become very important to them and they want more likes and more followers. So now when anybody follows them, you know, oh, cool. I just got a friend request from a cool guy named Ted Bundy. Yes, except another follower. Yeah. So all of a sudden we live in a world where kids have more devices than ever. They're feeling low, about, lower than themselves than they've ever felt before. And they're willing to let anybody follow them as they're posting desperately about themselves. Predators are loving this. Predators are absolutely loving this. And a lot of parents don't even know how to engage in their kids in conversations about this. That's why in the book, I spent a lot of time of talking to our kids about how do you recognize predatory behavior? How do we talk to them about 
uh, you know, not being willing to just jump and, and go meet a stranger. I, I talk, trained a bunch of youth workers about teens and screens, and they were telling me, Jonathan, we went out of town and we went on a trip where we had kids uh, and we we're in hotels and we had a, a chaperone in each hotel room. The chaperone had to sleep by the hotel room door because kids were trying to sneak out at night to go meet people in the city that they had just mm. met on social media. And they saw no problem with this at all. I got to go meet this person who really all I have is a picture and a name. Well, is that picture really who they met? So these are the questions we got to start talking with, with our kids. Okay. We want to become screen wise families, but how do we do that? Well, Jonathan McKee is uh, providing us lots of great resources at becomingscreenwise.com. His newest book is Parenting Generation Screen, Guiding Your Kids to Be Wise in the Digital World. We're giving copies away today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. One of the things I really appreciated about the book is this conversation about correction without destroying connection. So talk with us about that. I want to stay connected to my kid even when I have to correct them in in relationship to what they're doing um, on, you know, on screen. Yeah. You know, in in all honesty, I mean, just just a lot of parents, our our instinct is to swoop down with the rules. We hear an interview like this and we get panicked. We think predators and we want to go home and we want to (laughs) overreact and take everything away from our kids. And and, and so uh, honestly, what happens is then our kids realize, well, dad and mom are not safe. They do not understand me. Whatever. So what do they do? They start sneaking out. We need to turn our overreaction into interaction. And throughout the book, what I did is instead of just providing a bunch of blocks, here's how to block your phone. Here's the boundaries you should have. Yes, I talk about blocks. Yes, I talk about it. Here's some very helpful boundaries like no phones in the bedroom at night. That's it's a no-brainer, honestly. It's probably, if I could have one boundary, that's one boundary I'd have. But I talk about how do we create boundaries like this? How do we do this? And I talk about placing connection before correction. And I actually give five steps that throughout the book, when no matter what rule we're talking about in the book, whether it's no phones in the bedrooms or you got to wait until you have social media or here's the limits on social media, I talk about applying these five steps and, and just giving a peek. The steps are basically giving us opportunity to present, hey, here's some research, and then listening to what our kids say about it. And then instead of just going, okay, here's what we're going to do, saying, you know what? We got to think about this and pray about this. Asking our kids, what would you do if your kids wanted to do this? And really kind of having that family meeting, talking about this and kind of delaying that decision until a later meeting where you say, okay, hey, next Thursday, we're going to go to pizza we're going to talk about this. So it's really setting up a, this is a conversation. We need to dialogue about this. And we're not just going to go with feelings. We're going to, we're going to look at what research says, and we're going to make a decision together that we own as a family. It's connection before correction. And if we started doing a lot more of that, if we turned our overreaction and our quick, no, why? Because I said so. This is when the why comes out, getting to the why. The why is way more important than the boundary. Because the why is going to equip them when someday, let's be honest, they're 18 years old and they're in a college dorm, they're in an army barracks, and they're making these decisions by themselves. And they're probably not going to call up mom and say, mom, there's a new HBO series. Can I stream it? They're going to make that decision for themselves. And the only question we need to ask ourselves is, did we equip them for that day? All right. I will tell you that the uh, the list on page 188 <clears throat> is... Um... Uh, is going to guide the pizza conversation in our family. Talk okay. about going 
for pizza. Talk about setting it as a date and, you know, as a family date and um, and talk a little bit about what, you know, I should expect to accomplish during that pizza evening. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. And and the pizza meeting sounds, sounds so funny as we're talking about this. But throughout the whole book, one of the concepts I kept talking about was not overreacting, interacting, talking with your kids, not making a decision right there, but saying, hey, let's talk about this next week. And, and, and I kept talking about this pizza meeting. So finally, at the end of the book, I'm like, okay, now it's the pizza meeting. <laughs> Now's the meeting that you've been saying, hey, let's pray about this. Let's think about this. Let's dialogue about this. So yeah, what I do is I finally say, when you, when you, when you set up this gathering, this, this opening these doors of dialogue, I talk about, you know, how do you ask some fun questions so that your kids are used to sharing and you listening? Uh, they start feeling safe because you've proven yourself now several times where they shared and you're like, wow, that's something to think about. Let me pray about that. Let me think about that. You know, um, you, you've looked at research together. You've practiced empathy. You've stepped in your shoes. I, I've actually gave some tips in the book and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll let one out here. One of the tips that really helped me, I found sometimes I was always thinking about how I was going to respond and how I was going to counter my kids' argument of why they should do something. And I think empathy really is stepping into our kids' shoes. So one of the things I say that it was a trick that I learned that really helped me empathize with my kids is when my kids talk, I, in my mind, and I never told them I was doing this, but I, in my mind, pretended that I was their defense attorney trying to understand their point of view and how, how can I really think about, hmm, they have a good point here. They have a good point here. Wow. They're feeling criticized at school. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't me saying, fine, you can have your phone in your bedroom. I give up. Fine, 10-year-old, you can have a phone and use it. Jump on social media. Lie about your age. No, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying understanding what our kids are going through so that we become that safe source that they'll come to us and they'll talk with us about that. Asking them, what do you think is best? And finally, at that pizza meeting, saying, hey, here's some of the things we've discovered. And really, we've kind of narrowed down our list of rules to this. We've got five rules. And I tell parents, have just, you know, come down to just a few that you feel like no bedrooms, you know, no devices in their bedroom. You know, um, we're going to set our social media profiles to private. So they actually have to, you know, uh, look at who's giving their friend request. And then we talk about that. Uh, we're going to spend, before you get a device, we're going to go through this book, this teen's guide to social media, and we're going to learn about what are we posting, who are we talking to, and then having some of those rules and laying them out. And I give some samples of what some of those rules are like. Mm-hmm. So it's a conversation, and it's something that as a family, you come to together and you talk about. And there's going to be times where they might disagree and you say, well, nevertheless, this is what we've come up for. And it's okay to do that because you've had that connection before that correction. So I try to lay out yes. what those dialogues look like. It's just a great resource. The book is Parenting Generation Screen, Guiding Your Kids to Be Wise in a Digital World. Jonathan McKee is the author. You can find out more at becomingscreenwise.com. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's so good to be here. We'll be right back. All right, we've covered a lot of ground today. I'm hoping that uh, you have been encouraged. I'm hoping that you feel more informed as you walk out into the world that God so loves. I hope you also have a sober awareness of the 
critical needs of those in the world. You know, we're we are here for such a time as this, and we don't always know exactly what that means. But, you know, by God's providence, this is our time and this is our place and our space. And we have been endowed with his Holy Spirit to accomplish his will in the world right now. And so you and I have the privilege of being ambassadors of a king and a kingdom that is not of this world, but that is designed to and desirous to influence this world. And so how are we going to do that today? How can you and I influence this kingdom on behalf of the kingdom of God? How can we bear out kingdom attributes and how can we be a kingdom influence? Let's be people who recognize the presence and the goodness of the grace of God, and let's recognize the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Let's be people who abide in Christ and then walk that faith out into the world that God so loves. I'm doing it. I'm glad to be doing it with you. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.